What's going on, Transit Church? I uh, assume there's many of you out there. There's only a few of us in here, but I mean, we are really excited because this is the first step on our move to, uh, to welcoming you back into our services. And so we do that. We welcome you, first of all. Uh, welcome you, first of all, uh, for those of you who are joining us for the first time. We welcome you. Uh, if you're a regular member of the Transit Church, we welcome you to our live stream. Glad that you are with us today. We're going to be in Matthew 23, looking at one single verse. Matthew 23, 23. I uh, debated with myself as to what to call this sermon. Uh, my first title is, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Uh, the, the second is, The Weightiness of Justice and Mercy. And so uh, you'll figure out why I, uh, why I debated with myself in terms of what to call this. Uh, we're going to read the scriptures, pray, and then we'll, we'll dive on in. Matthew 23, Verse 23, read with me. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that it would do what it only can do in our hearts and the hearts of men and women this morning. We are grateful for a beautiful day, for the technology that allows us as a scattered church throughout the DMV to, to gather as your people. Lord, we uh, pray that you would illumine your word to us, that we would sense um, that you are with us, that the, that the Holy Spirit that's within all of us, Lord God, would unite us even though we're separated into our homes and and to other places this morning. More importantly, Lord God, we pray that your, your word would uh, inform us, that it would point us to Jesus and in his name that we would be changed. Amen and amen. You know, so one of the words being thrown around in the current conversation, the, the national conversation, is, uh, is this word justice, uh, actually injustice, systemic injustices against black Americans, um, for, uh, you know, for, uh, in regards to racism, systemic injustices in particular to, to black men uh, in regards to p- police brutality. And uh, before you turn me off and stop the, the live stream, you'll be glad to know we're not actually going to debate whether any of those injustices exist today. Uh, so y'all can relax. You know, I think a lot of times when, um, uh, you know, in times of tension and we've experienced these uh, every couple years, uh, really, it, they're, they're exacerbating. We're seeing them every, or every month or so now. But uh, when you have a, a person stand up in front of you, particularly a, a black man, we think that the words that are going to come out of his mouth in regards to justice and injustice are just, you know, are, are complaining and, and whining. And, of course, that's not the case today. Uh, I'm not the angry black man that you need to fear. I'm still your pastor. Uh, you guys know me. Uh, in fact, I don't even think y'all have ever seen me, seen me angry. Uh, but here, here's what I want to do today. I think it would be helpful because the national conversation is on the, the, the topic of justice and injustices. I think it would be helpful for us as a church to explore what the Bible actually says about justice. And so that's what we're going to do today with Matthew's gospel as, as our help. I want to um, set as a foundation for us today these words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know about you, these words challenge me. I don't know about you, these words actually convict me. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, there is a calling to which we have been called as people of God, and that calling is to walk worthy. And the qualifications of walking worthy is that we do it with a measure of humility and of gentleness and of patience that we bear with one another in love that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Why? Because although there's a many of us 
God has made it so that we're one in spirit. We're one in body, Jesus' body, and he's the head. This is what, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying we enter into the faith as individuals, confessing and repenting of our sin and thanking Jesus for, for saving us and bringing us into his family. But then the rest of our sanctification is it's communicable. I mean, it's it's it's. It's not just individual. Our sanctification is collective. And I I think there's two things that I want to frame firstly in in what Paul is saying that helps us get into this idea of, of justice. And it's firstly this, is that we can't dismiss that the current tensions are just man made. We, we know throughout scripture there's a, there's a, there's a, a theology uh, that, that God is in the midst of everything. There's not a thing that's outside of his parameter. And so this isn't just man made. God uses some things to, to move us along the path of our sanctification. We can't dismiss the purposes of God in all that's going on in our country for us. And with that, it's the second thing. We just can't say to the people that don't look like us, based upon what Paul says in Ephesians 4, well, you know what? This is just too hard. I don't think we're ever going to figure out this race thing on this side of heaven. So here's my plan. Like you and your people, those people that look like you, think like you, act like you, have had the same experience as you, y'all stand on this side. Me and my people, those who look like me, think like me, have had my experience. We're going to stand on this side. We'll be a divided people with this line in front of us, and when we get to heaven, that's when we'll do this multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial thing, when we all get to heaven, because that'll be a lot easier. And that sounds kind of, I mean, it sounds good. Actually, it doesn't even sound good. That's, that's, that's not biblical philosophy. You guys know that. Now, that said, does every church need to have, does every church need to be multi-ethnic, multi-racial, like all mixed up? Does every venue that we attend, does every event of our lives need to be a a multi-racial event? No, it doesn't. In fact, geography, the geography of how we live and, you know, how we work and move around, it doesn't lend to that. And you know what? It actually doesn't even match some of our interests. God uh, births us into cultures and races that he intends for us to, to be groomed in. But the Bible informs us that all of us have the same spirit, so says the Apostle Paul, which makes us, get this, it makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord. Not, not just when we get to heaven, but right now here on earth. And you'll hear me say this a couple times. Because we're brothers and sisters in the Lord, what unites us is way more than what divides us. And so today we're going to talk about justice. Um, I've never preached on justice. I've never heard a sermon preached on justice. And to be honest, I don't think you want me to. I don't think anybody wants to talk about justice right now. But this is the, this is the narrative that I think our country is talking about. And so as a church, we need to enter this as well, we would we have to admit that amidst the things going on in our country uh, right now, it would be helpful for, for us to know what God says about justice. And so this brings us to our text. And our text, the singular verse that we're looking at is found in the midst of Jesus preaching woes to religious leaders. There's actually seven woes starting at the beginning of, of verse 20, uh, chapter 23, verse one, going all the way to, to, to verse 33. Seven woes. This is Jesus as indignantly and as righteously angry as we ever see him in the Bible. I mean, he is going off. He's mad. Warnings are, uh, woes are, woes are warnings and, and cautions that Jesus gives, commending people to repentance. This, this is akin to how the Old Testament prophets would, would speak judgments against God's people, but also to the nations and the, the cultures surrounding them when they failed to submit themselves to what God's, God's commands required of them. And so uh, a practical example, at least from me growing up, woe is when uh, a parent says to their child, you got one more time to act a fool. Now, that might not be the language that you would use in your 21st century house, wherever you live, but where I live in the 60s and 70s in Durham, North Carolina, those were some of the words that came out of my family's mouth. 
Woe is, is when your mom uses your full name, like Jeffrey Keith Tumor, whatever your name is. And I think that crosses the, that crosses the boundary, doesn't it? I mean, I, every culture has that happening. When mom says your full government name, you know she, she means it. Like the, the next time that she has to speak to you, something is going to happen. Not like in my day, it was a spanking. Like even teachers had paddles they could spank kids back in the 70s. Today, it's more likely isolation or time out, you know, kinder, friendlier, friendlier woes, so to speak. But, but all of us understand these woes from our daily life. And so Jesus is saying the same thing, he, except he's saying it perhaps with, in a more redemptive, a beautifully more redemptive way. He's saying, woe, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, we know them from the Gospels. Scribes were uh, the, the professional Bible copiers. They didn't have printing presses 2,000 years ago. Pharisees were the clergymen of their day. They were the professional Christians, seminary professors. They were tasked with keeping the whole law and making sure the people did too. Both of these groups were expected to get religion right. More importantly, they were the leaders who were supposed to guide the people to love and serve God fully. And yet, in our text, Jesus is chastising these two groups of men, of leaders, of people with woes. And he gives seven of them. Woe to you. He's condemning them. In other words, he's saying, I condemn you, scribes and Pharisees, because you're telling the people what religious stuff they're supposed to do, but you yourself aren't even doing it. I condemn you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for wanting to be seen in honor and yet failing to serve those that God has called you to serve in love. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for making it hard for people to even come to faith because you give them too many rules to follow. And then he ends on this one. This is in verse 33. Woe to you. I condemn you, scribes and Pharisees, for killing the very prophets among you who come to show you the way to God. And of course, he's foretelling his own death. These, these, these religious leaders, what would they do? They, they would con Judas into uh, betraying Jesus. He'd be arrested, he'd undergo a trial, and then he'd be put on the cross by those Roman soldiers. And here's what Jesus is doing here. He's confronting religion. Situationally, this, this interaction between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees is close to the end of his life. Very shortly thereafter, as I said just now, he's going to go to Bethany outside Jerusalem. Then he's going to go to the temple. He's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be tried, several trials, and then he's going to be crucified. He's going to, be, he's going to die and be buried. But what we see Jesus doing right here is not being afraid of confrontation. Jesus isn't scared to confront religion. He's not timid to engage hard issues, the hard issues of life. And what we see here is that if you shy away from confrontation, it's actually hard to be in relationship with Jesus. Because isn't that the way that we come into the faith? We, we hear the gospel. Someone brings us to church. Someone shares a track with us. Someone opens their Bible and talks about Jesus and who he is and what he's done in our place for our sin. And, but, but the Spirit of God cuts us to the chase, and we realize that we're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that's the Bible. That's the gospel confronting you. And what do you do when that happens? You confess your sin. And 1 John 1, 9 is, says that Jesus is, is faithful and just to forgive you and to purify you from your unrighteousness. And so Jesus is, is, is confronting these religious leaders because at the center of the gospel is this idea of confrontation. The fact that there is a cross is God's commitment to our redemptive confrontation. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! Then he calls them hypocrites. Like, all right, so where are, where are all my hypocrites at? Where are all my hypocrites at? So I can't see through the broadband, um, but everybody's hand should be raised. My hand is raised. In fact, I'm going to raise both of my hands. Hypocrites. There's not a one of us. There's not a single person who lives on this planet that in some way is not a hypocrite. Why is that? Because there are things that we say we believe. There's things that we confess. There's things that we support, at least with our, like, like verbally, that we don't follow through in our actions. We're all hypocrites. This word hypocrite means pretender or an actor. Think of a theater that you go to and you see people up there uh, assuming, taking on a role for which that it doesn't mirror their, their normal life. 
So some of you have gone on mission trips and you've uh, prepared skits ahead of time. And in those skits, you have created a drama that depicts some Bible story or that puts the gospel on display. I like to think of a pantomime, you know, those, those weird clown-like, like a, a sad, dreary, dreary clown. And what they're doing is through their gestures, they're acting out what the drama that they're trying to convey through all of their gestures and no, and no words. And so Jesus says to these religious leaders, uh, you're condemned, scribes and Pharisees, because you're pretending. You're acting like something is there in your life that actually isn't. Jesus calls them hypocrites because they were, they were spiritual pretenders. They were spiritual actors, pretending like they were committed to God, but they weren't. And of course, there's a challenge for us in the church with that. It's when we pretend, it's when we act like we're committed to the things of God, but we're, we're actually not. And of course, what this is leading up to is Jesus telling us what full commitment looks like. Before we get to that, here's why Jesus calls the, the, the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Again, verse 23, for you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. All right, I don't know very much about cooking. I can cook some breakfast, like Sure enough, I can cook some breakfast. It gets tricky after that. What I, what I especially don't understand about cooking uh, are the spices. I mean, there's just so many of them. And it's like, I mean, how do you know what to use, when to use it, so that that little bitty tiny spice gives the food that you are going to eat the aroma and the flavor that makes the food like, like mouth-watering good? I, I don't understand that. All right, so, but here's what I do know. I had to look it up. Um, mint, dill, those are dried green uh, herbs. You probably got one of those in your cabinet. Actually, my family, we grow mint on our, on our patio. Not because we put it in our food, we put it in our mojitos, if you know what I mean. Uh, some of you probably got cumin in your, uh, in your cupboard. But here's what Jesus means when he's talking about tithing mint, dill, and cumin. These were light spices, light in terms of appearance, not necessarily, as I said, in, in terms of uh, the flavor that they add to the dishes that we, that we eat. Jesus is pointing out really the trivial, minutiae-like quality of the commitment of these scribes and Pharisees that they would, uh, that their, I mean, their commitment to keep the law. They have that um, close of a scrutiny on their own lives in terms of following what God has said in his law. They, were, they weren't only tithing the gold, like their money, uh, the gold, the silver. Uh, they, weren't, they weren't just uh, providing the, the sacrificial animals. They would literally take the smallest parts of every part of their life to include herbs. Uh, commentators would say that these Pharisees were so serious about following God's law that they would break out their scales and of their, of their various uh, herbs, they would measure out to the exact scale uh, one-tenth of, of all of their herbs to make sure they were obeying the law in regards to tithing. And they gave all this effort because these actions made them look committed. In the same way, these are things in the church that can make us look committed to God at the core, but actually not be fully committed. I'm going to give you one example. So we are a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial church. Church growth uh, experts say that you are a multi-ethnic church when you have no more than one racial group in the church that's more than 70%. So I would say that of the transit. Okay, So it's probably 70% white, and then we got a smattering of all the others, all the other stuff, black, Indian, a little bit of Asian, like we're, we're, we're not quite a bag of Skittles. I'm praying that we get there, but we got at least some pieces of the Skittle in, you know, in our congregation. In fact, here this morning, there are some Skittles in the worship, in the house, like amen to that, right? And so here, here's, the, here's the cool thing. I hope you, I mean, I hope you like that. Uh, it, it, is, it is okay. It's commendable to want to worship God in the house of the Lord with people who don't look like you. Why? Because the Bible informs us that we're not just supposed to get along from a distance. We're supposed to worship together. Why? Because, I mean, Revelation 7, like every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, they're going to be there. I would hate for you to get to heaven and that, that one group that you like despise, like they're right up in your face and praise the Lord. I mean, that would be something, wouldn't it? And so many of us, um, 
we, we like, in fact, we even seek out being a part of multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches. Let, let me challenge you here, though. The, it, it would be easy to brag about that. In fact, you know, come into our church, inviting your friends. They're going to find at least a couple people that look like them. You might even toss in, hey, my, my pastor's black, uh, and, and he's cool. I mean, he's like one of us, right? We say stuff like that. But, but, but here's the challenge. It would be, it would be, Okay for us to enjoy multiracial, multiethnic um, worship on Sunday, but the difficulty is, do we take that into the week with us so that we are multiethnic, multiracial in the ways that we carry out the rest of our lives? My friend Eric Mason says this. He pastors Epiphany Church in. Uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He says, we like the environment that makes us look committed without the discomfort of the, the, the hard work of discipleship and sanctification that comes along with worshiping with people who aren't quite like us. When it comes to the, 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 the real talk about racial reconciliation, you know what? We just can't talk the talk without walking the walk. It, it requires us to do face-to-face like in your face, brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, or we're not really doing it. We're being hypocrites. We're saying one thing, but not really following through in it. And this is one of those areas where it's important for us to get beyond the facade of our commitment to the church. This past Sunday, we gathered here in this room. Uh, so we you know, came together for the first time in like three and a half months, and we came together under the topic of, of race and the church. And that is uh, the first of what I hope will be uh, many uh, avenues for us as a church uh, in the months to come to talk about racial reconciliation. But the, the, the question for, I think, the, for, for us church is, will our faith move us beyond the pretense? Will our faith move us beyond uh, the hypocrisy of saying that we support one thing, but they're not being the follow-through action really in, in our lives? Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, for, by, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so if, if what Paul is saying in Ephesians 2 is, is right, and it is because it's the infallible word, there should be more, again, that unites us than what divides us. Why? Because Jesus has died for us to, to lay down our hostility. To, he's, he's torn down the wall that divides us, black, white, red, brown, yellow. Did I forget a color? He, he's, he's, he's removed all those things, and he's given us himself that we might come together. He's included us in his family. And yet, can we truly grow in brotherhood and sisterhood, in biblical community, engaging in the, in the one another's of Scripture? You know, those one another's of Scripture, those are also hard to do. They're hard to do, but those are the things that cause us to grow. And you can't even do a one another unless you've got another to do it with. And so when we get to the core of, of what it means collectively to walk with Jesus, we've got to do those things that Jesus said, those hard-to-do things. And so back to our text, Jesus says, You hypocrites, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe men and deal in cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is a play on words. The scribes and Pharisees were majoring in the minors, and Jesus is calling them out on that. They, they, they go through the trouble of, of minutia, tithing lighter things, but they lack the weightier things of the law. Weightier suggests here important. So Jesus is saying all the law is important, but there are some things that are more important than others. The weightier matters of the law aren't things that are always physical, like these spices that you are spending so much effort to, to tithe. The weightier matters are spiritual. They're, they're physically lighter than dill mint and cumin, yet they are much heavier in the implications for your lives. Then he gives, Jesus gives them an example of what the weightiness looks like. Jesus says, you've neglected justice and mercy 
and faithfulness. Jesus has in mind probably Micah 6, 8 from the Old Testament. Nick finished his sermon last week applying that verse to our current environment and, uh, and what we're experiencing now. So I commend that sermon to you. And here's what Jesus is doing here in this, in this verse. He's expanding what Micah says, and he's giving us another take. And the first thing that he says is weighty. It's important for us as people of God coming together as his family. It's this idea of justice. So the idea of justice means what's morally right. Justice means to do what's morally right. Something happens and we're supposed to judge rightly. I think of John 8, the, the, the story that Jesus tells. Actually, it's not a story. It's a story that happens in the midst of Jesus uh, with a woman who was caught in adultery. So Jesus is teaching at the temple and these same religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, I mean, they are in cohorts with each other, right? They come to Jesus with a woman that they had caught in adultery, Jesus is in the midst of teaching, and they interrupt him, and they say to Jesus, so, so Jesus, the law commands us to stone this woman because we just caught her in the act of adultery. And they want to know what Jesus would do. And so here's what Jesus does. I mean, Jesus is clever. He's wise. He stoops down on the ground. He starts writing, probably drawing in the dirt or a sand on his finger, like, like scribe, I mean, everybody's debated as to what Jesus is actually writing in, in the sand. We, we don't know. But then he stands up and he says these words to those religious leaders who are around him. He says, those of you who are without sin, go ahead, pick up a rock, throw that stone at this woman and kill her. And then he stoops back down and he begins to write in the, on the ground in the sand again. Again, we don't know. We know what he said. We don't know what he's writing. But then a miracle happens. Those jokers start like walking. They start walking away. Commentators tell us that when Jesus says, those of you without sin, uh, this isn't just like a generic sin that he's talking about. He's actually challenging, uh, challenging these religious leaders with committing the same sin this woman has been committing. He's saying, if, 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 if those of you who are around me, if you don't have the same sin going on in your life, the sin of adultery, go ahead, pick up a rock and start throwing it. And they start walking away. And of course, here's what's going on. Jesus takes the opportunity to point out their hypocrisy. He's speaking truth to power, right? He does the morally right thing. He forbids these religious leaders from condemning a woman for sins that they, too, were committing. What was the difference? They just hadn't gotten caught with it. It's a weighty matter for us to look at life through the lens of justice. And yet... It should pervade everything that we do in the church. And here's why I change the church, because we all want justice. Don't we want to be treated right? Don't we want to be treated fairly, even in those precarious situations where you know, like, man, my life is on the line? But more importantly, we all need justice. Here's what my Bible informs me of, is that we're all sinners on a, on a journey straight to hell, unless, we, uh, unless our lives at some point intersect with Jesus we all deserve condemnation. We all deserve the wrath of God. And yet, here's what God does. He comes in the person of Jesus. And he sees us in our sin. And instead of taking out his rock to throw at us and to stone us to death, here's what he does. He takes out a cloak and he overlays us in his grace. He clothes us in his compassion he, he, he brings us along the, the path of, of his mercy and the justice that we deserve because of our sin is met when he pours it out. He pours out his wrath on Jesus in our place on the cross. Oh, what a savior. Here's the question I'm asking myself. It is in this idea of justice, how does the church systematically involve itself in challenging the brokenness in our cities while still proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the gospel both in word and deed. And can I be honest with you, Transit Church? We don't do this well. And I'm standing up here as your pastor, repenting to you for failing you in that, you know, here's what we're good at. We're good at opening the Bible. I like, like, like your pastors here, your elders, we can open the Bible from any book, from any text, and we can show you Jesus, of how it leads to Jesus, fulfillment in Jesus. We can preach the gospel to you and tell you why you need, like contextually, how, you know, how the scriptures are meeting you and where you are in your life right now. Here's what we're bad at. 
we're bad at taking this same book, the same gospel, and applying it to the brokenness of, our, of the lives around us. We have not done that well, and I'm at fault. And so I repent. You know, the, 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 mm, it's this crazy um, conversation that's going on right now is about the social gospel. Um, some people take offense to this idea of, of social gospel. Social gospel is the idea that the Christian faith should be practiced not just as a call to uh, individual conversion, but also to bring about social reform. Social reforms like is like uh, bringing about economic equality, of 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 ending alcoholism and and high crime in certain parts of our cities and in certain ethnic groups. It's about uh, doing something about racial tensions. It's about um, reversing the trend that we see in in slums and ghettos and low-income housing environments. It's about doing something about poverty. It's about making schools more equitable. All those kinds of things. And, and here's what opponents of social gospel would say. They say, well, come on, the, the gospel is the gospel. And if we preach anything other than the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified, then we have been we are presenting a false gospel. They, they, they say that here, here's the argument. If you get a person saved, then God is going to change their heart. And when God changes their heart, it'll change their everything about them, their attitude, their actions, they'll be better people and they'll do better in society. That's the argument. I think we missed a couple beats in there. This is what Jesus' little brother James says. He says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's where we miss the beat that I think James is picking up on and we need to pay a little bit more attention to. Sometimes it's not wrong to preach the gospel. That is the only thing that saves Jesus and him crucified. But sometimes when we lead not with the gospel, but lead instead with deeds, it makes room like a wide path for the gospel to follow. And that's what the social gospel is about. I know y'all want me to give off of that. Here's my bottom line. Justice is messy, folks. It's, it's messy. It's not easy. And it will cause us to come against people in power and systems and sometimes to challenge our own local and federal governments that see things differently. And I think we're called to that. And one of the things that prevents the church from engaging in the work of justice is we have not yet decided if we like each other. It's true. We have not decided yet. We, ha we haven't taken what Jesus says in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 2 to be true for us. It sounds right on paper, but when we act it out, we don't believe it. He calls us brothers and sisters, and we have not yet really fully accepted that. The church is oftentimes as divided as the, 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 the culture around us. We're divided on so many things. There are some things, singular things we think about theology that we can come together on. The Trinity, infallibility, inerrancy, we'll say, yeah, I believe in those. But after that, man, it's a loose, it's a loose um, coming together, isn't it? We disagree about doctrines. We disagree about women in, uh, women in ministry. We, we're like the Pharisees. We focus on all these minor matters. One church does small groups. One does Sunday school. One has Wednesday night, Wednesday night Bible study. Sometimes we can't deal with each other because of all this other stuff getting in the way, things that divide us. These are light matters, Jesus would say to us. And then the things happen in our cities, in our country, that call the church to speak with one voice, like the cry for justice for an image bearer, a black image bearer. Like the call to end systemic racism for people of color in our country after 400 years of injustices. And you know what the church sometimes says? It, it says, well, I can't get behind that because if I support that movement, that Black Lives Matter movement, people might think I like them or I think like them. And I shrug my shoulder. You know, you know like emoji, that like iPhone emoji with that, that girl is going like this, like what? Like what? The what? The world doesn't know our Christian idiosyncrasies. They don't know what they are. All the world knows is that we can't get our act together when it comes to unity. 
The truth is, we all have issues. If you're a black American like me, that regardless of how old you are, you have, you have what I would call generational PTSD. It's like embedded in our souls such that it's created systemic issues in how we relate to white people. It's true. And I don't need you to agree with me. I'm just telling you what, what, like, what is the what. It's true. We have generational PTSD. And, and if you're white, you know you got issues too, right? <laughs> you got issues. Firstly, you have issue with the African-American community in regards to uh, the thought that all white people have privilege. And you're, you're fighting back with me. You're saying, well, well Jeff, like, how in the world can, can you say that I have white privilege? I didn't control, I mean, like, I didn't make myself born white into the culture, into the, the, the you know, the, everything that, I, that I'm born into. And I don't even think like that. And so how can there be any such thing as, as, as white privilege? You also uh, have issues with this cry that all white people should repent over racism. And of course, that's not part of my sermon, and that would be a great discussion for us to have collectively as a church. We, obviously, we studied that a little bit uh, last Sunday. I love that, that nursery school rhyme that we sing in the church. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Guess what? Those children have issues. We all have issues. And here's the truth. We are more culturally trained than we are Christologically trained. We take our cues. We take our training. We take our learning. We take our influence from the culture around us and to hell with the Bible. We need to be able to come together around the table and be honest. That was, the, that was the purpose of Sunday, to give us a venue where everybody comes in and, and ask the questions. Like one of the questions that we asked on Sunday is this, what don't you understand about people who don't look like you and, and haven't had the experience that you've had? We need to be able to have a, a venue without judgment that we can do those kinds of things. What do you not like about people who don't look like you and, and haven't had the experience that you've had? And if we in the church can't do that, who can? I learned this phrase this week as I was studying for this, this sermon. All reconciliation begins with tension and honesty. All reconciliation begins with tension and honesty. It's that way with your children. It's that way in your marriage. It's that way on your job. It's that way in life and even in the church. Paul, at the end of his letter to the, the Corinthians, he says this. He says, aim for restoration. Actually, he says more than that. It's a beautiful passage. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. I love those words, but, the, but the, where my eyes are trained, it's this idea of aiming for restoration. We'll never get there unless we're willing to sit in the uncom uncomfortability of this moment and the racial tensions that we have right now. We got to deal with that, and we got to sit in it, as uncomfortable as it is, until God the Holy Spirit does the thing that he needs to do in us that we can't do for ourselves. Jesus talks about mercy, uh, justice. He says justice is weighty, it's important. Next he says, mercy. Mercy is the attribute here that shows us the heart of God. Mercy is all over the Bible. But the place that, that it stands out to me is in regard to the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, why is mercy a weighty matter? I'm going to ask you to think about the design of, of the Ark of the Testimony. We find this in Exodus 25. We aren't going to turn there, but it would be good for you to, uh, at some point this week, to go and look and see what God gives Moses the instructions on, on building this box that would house his presence. And so the, the text in Exodus 25 tells us this, this box. It's just a box, but it's made of acacia wood. Acacia wood is, is wood that we can find on the planet even today. It was in the Middle East. Today we can find it in Australia. It's a hard wood, and so it was used um, to, to make furniture and to make houses. It could withstand, uh, 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 to, to be made into those kinds of things. Uh, Moses' instructions from God was to overlay this box of acacia wood in gold, to put moldings around it. He attached rings so that it could be carried by poles that were also laced with gold, and also because it was forbidden once it was made to touch this ark. Inside the ark, which was uh, covered in gold, it contained three things, the Ten Commandments for which God wrote with his finger, the, the commandments of God, the moral law. It had a jar of manna. 
the, the, the manna that preserved Israel in the wilderness. And then it has Aaron's rod that budded, uh, announcing him as a priest forever uh, and also to, to show the authority of God. It, it, it was housed in the, in, the, in the Holy of Holies. And so this ark was kept behind a curtain, kind of separated from everything, uh, symbolizing the separate nature of who God is. I mean, he is not like us, way more holier than we could ever fathom. And here's where the mercy comes in, in regards to this ark. Over the ark hung this thing called a mercy seat. You should Google it. Google mercy seat, see some, uh, some, you know, some pictures that people have derived that they think resemble what Moses was told to build by, by God back in Exodus 25. But literally, the, the function of the mercy seat was quite simple. It was just a lid. Think of a shoebox and the lid that you would put on top that, that, that's already on your shoes when you get it and you just lift it off. And so this mercy seat was the lid that sat on top of the ark. It would have been made out of acacia wood. It would have been covered in gold. Something special about it, though. On top of the, this, this lid, this, this mercy seat, were two angelic beings. They were seraphim, and they were stretched out, touching each other with their wings and uh, symbolically, what this mercy seat was showing is, is, is showing that God's Shekinah glory just kind of drops down and it meets, the, it meets us face to face. More importantly, it meets the high priest face to face as the sacrifices are given on that one day that he could come in, in, into that curtain, the Day of Atonement. One commentator writes it like this. He says, mercy sits on top of the law. You know what the law, the law represents? The law represents, obviously, the, the commands that God wants us to keep, that keeps us in communion with him. The, the, the law are God's heart. It's, it's, it's who he is and how he reveals himself to us. And, and sometimes we receive them as rules that we follow or else God's going to smite us. But, but even when we have that perspective, here's what God does for us. He puts mercy on top of it. He, he's like, all right, folks, I'm going to give you these laws, and I know you're not going to follow them. You're going to do it imperfectly. And some of them, you're just going to outright like sin against me. I'm going to, I'm going to clothe you in mercy on top of that so that when you fail to do the things that I want you to do, you'll know that even in your brokenness, I'm committed to my word, to love you and to extend mercy to you. Here's what I think about the church. The church needs to be a community of mercy. The church needs to be a community of mercy. I think we cry to God for mercy for ourselves a lot. I don't, I, you know, probably every prayer I pray, I pray in some sense, God, please extend your mercy to me. Do not give me what I deserve. But a lot of times, the way this acts out in our lives is when we're thinking about other people, people who have done things to us, said things to us, from as simple as uh, cutting us off in traffic to taking our spot in a seat that we wanted on the metro, back when we were, like pre-COVID, when we rode the metro. And so here's a lot of times how that plays out in our life. We want mercy for ourselves. We don't care what other people get. In fact, we want them to get what they deserve, which is oftentimes something way less than mercy. I think God is calling the church community to not only be known for what we're against, but to be known for what we're for. Do you ever notice that about us? Like we can get together as Christians and you're like, I don't do that. Well, I definitely wouldn't do that. We don't say that. Oh, we couldn't do that either. We got so many things that we are against. What the heck are we for? How about we become known for what we're for? If the world only sees the church as a community that has a bunch of rash judgments about particular sins in the culture, they hear us most vocally talk about what's wrong with the culture instead of having a commitment with a unified voice that extends mercy to that same culture. And it proves that we're not just above or around to the side of the culture. It proves that we're a part of it. And that's what God called us to be, salt and light in the midst of a dark world. What would happen if the church of God had a voice of mercy? Let me give you a specific example. What would happen if when someone who's an ethnic minority gets shot or killed by someone else, I'm not even talking about a cop, say it's black on black crime, say it's black on white crime, what would happen if we didn't just go look at the facts first? Like that, that guy had a, had a record. He'd been in jail before. He was a crack dealer. He was in, up to no good, doing wrong. He's been doing that for all his whole, whole life. 
What would happen if we didn't go there first, but as a community, we chose to not deal with the facts first and start condemning. Instead, we look with eyes of mercy. What would happen if we start with eyes of mercy? What if that person in this altercation did not deserve to die, regardless of their rap sheet, regardless of what they had been doing, regardless of the sin in their life? What if they were an image bearer of God and they just did not deserve to die? One more thing. What is the mercy that needs to accompany the situation for the family of that person that has to deal with the loss and the many that might suffer because of it? Have you ever thought like that? That's what mercy brings us to. Here's the last thing that Jesus says is wait. He says faithfulness. Some understand this to mean faith in God, but most commentators support that what's highlighted here is faithfulness as in our sincere and honest dealings with men. Faithful and honest dealings with men in opposition to fraud or cheating or circumventing the way of justice so that an unfairness happens. Interestingly, there's a parallel gospel, Luke 42, Luke 11, chapter, verse 42. Luke is conveying these same woes, these same seven woes. And here's what Luke says. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And instead of mercy and faith, here's what Luke says. He puts love of God in place of mercy and faithfulness. Faithfulness, of course, will be included in this idea of the love of God. That's the note I want to end on. So uh, one of my favorite pastor friends is a guy named Dave Shooter. He pastors a, a Presbyterian church in an affluent suburb outside of Columbus, Ohio. You guys have heard me talk about Dave uh, five, I don't know, a month or two ago. I talked about uh, missing a plane, and I was speaking, uh, you know, I was the keynote speaker for a men's retreat, and, like, I just messed it all up. So that was Dave. And so uh, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, four weeks ago, uh, Dave's a biker, a road biker, and he was riding his bike with some people from church, and uh, he was nearing the end of his ride, a, a kind of a like, 20-mile ride, um, and he was coming into his neighborhood. He goes over a speed bump, and unknown, unbeknownst to him, there's a three-inch trench, and you, if you've ever ridden a, uh, a road bike, small tires, his uh, tire caught the, the trench, turned 90 degrees, and, and like Dave is over six foot, probably about 200, big guy, and he flips, like the bike, the bike halts, he flips over, and uh, I mean, just like he lands on the ground, and all that weight, boom, he crushed. The next thing he knows, um, ambulance is coming, he's sort of unconscious, he's in the, in the waiting room, uh, in the ER, and all he can remember, uh, all he can think about is that he cannot breathe. This is Memorial Day weekend. This is the same weekend that all this stuff happened with, with George Floyd. And so he uh, is in the hospital, goes through surgery. He says the, the x-ray of his, of his ribs, uh, if you put two forks together like, like this, he says that's what his ribs look like from being crushed after his, his bike accident. And he literally could not breathe. And so at one point in the, in the ER, uh, the, the emergency workers, uh, seeing that he couldn't breathe, like, they went through all, like, all the emergency accident you, can, you could take, a short, just shy of, of intubating him, to sort of give him that, that air to like raise his chest so that he could breathe. Of course, he has the surgery and everything is all right now. But I want to share with you as we close uh, Dave's um, sort of his thoughts on breathing. And in this, he sort of uh, commemorizes George Floyd and what he went through. So Dave writes, uh, breathe. We understand the biological necessity of it. I understand that more than anything in the fact that I was in the ER and for a few moments, I could not breathe. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, breathe speaks of a deeper theological reality. In the creation account, God made humankind in his image and distinctly, uniquely breathed life into humanity. We are, all of us, God's image bearers. This is why we love to create. This is why we love to organize. This is why we love to care, because God put this in us. And hunger for real justice Hunger for deep mercy is things that God put, uh, put in us at the same time. This is also the grounds of God's irrefutable no. These are the grounds to the ways we vandalize his image in others. Racism foremost in view today. But the list is scandalously longer than that. Why does God create humanity and breathe life into us at all? 
Some of the best Christian thinkers answer it this way, because God is love and does love. We're here because God is love and does love. We bear his image. We're called to know less. And yet, you and me, we fail miserably. Your breath matters. George Floyd's breath mattered because you, like him, are simply made in God's image. And you're more loved than you or I will ever understand. And he concludes with this. So, so let's trust in the Spirit's work as we all work for the unvandalizing of that image wherever the Lord has placed us. And those are good words to end on. Let's pray. Father, we've had a series of emotional weeks filled not with just action, but with, with angst for things going on in our country that we cannot control. Lord, I wish we could just like snap our fingers and some of this stuff just be solved, that it would be resolved. But that is likely not the way that uh, we're going to see this, this stuff brought to some kind of resolution. We're, we're, we're reminded uh, in your scriptures that you have called your church to a uh, to walk in a, a calling worthy of the, the sons of God. You have called us to be a people who, uh, with humility and patience and love, bear with one another. And Lord, we can say those, we can quote that verse, we can say it pretty easily, but oh, it's so hard to do. So we need your help. We cry out for your help, Lord. In fact, we cry out the words of the psalmist. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to a rock that's higher. Lord, I, we, we need a lot of things. We need, uh, we need a perspective uh, of ourselves and of our lives and of those things that hold us back. Those things that you call us to as, as people of God to let go so that we can embrace each other as brothers and sisters. But I think more than that, we need a perspective. We need your perspective. And that's what you're giving the psalmist. The psalmist is crying out that life is not as, it's, as he wanted it to be. Life was not as it should be. And yet, he saw you bringing him to a rock that's higher. Would you do that for us? Would you do that for us as a church? Would you do that for us locally here in the DMV? Would you do that for us as, as races of people that you put on the planet? Because that's, that was the, the, the tapestry of life that you wanted to exist on your planet. Would you do that for our world? That you would give us not just our perspective down low, just like sloshing it out, just trying to make it happen in our own strength. Lord, what's going on in our country now with racial tension, injustices left and right, Lord, these are things that we won't be able to even scratch the surface on unless we have your perspective. So God, we give you permission, invade our hearts, do inside of us what we can't do in and of ourselves. Reconcile us to each other. And that doesn't mean diminish our differences of black and white and red and yellow. You purpose those to, uh, you know, to, to bring you joy. So we want to celebrate that. But at the same time, Lord, there are some differences in us that we just don't understand and we need your perspective. Help us to be brothers and sisters that learn to love each other and that they're willing to work it out. We pray that in Jesus' name.